As we continue worship now, we, uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We continue our worship and our study in this, in this uh, book that we've been looking at for a while now. Today we're in Isaiah 46 and 47. We're going to take two chapters today. They share a common theme, and so uh, we look forward to kind of moving along in Isaiah. A lot of times when we study Isaiah, you know, we're... We, <clears throat> there are so many trees, that we, and so we want to just uh, kind of not forget the, 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 big, the forest that, uh, that this book is. And if you think about the forest of this book, of this book, it is that God provides salvation to us through the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ. And that's, uh, that is not only this book, but it's the, the, the whole book in many ways. Isaiah 46 through 47, where we're going to be this morning. Once again, uh, we always want to obey the scriptures and give attention to the public reading of it. Uh, that's why we do read it. That's why I oftentimes choose to, to read all of the text. Whenever we get through a section, I don't just uh, pick and choose a few verses here and there. But uh, due to the length of the text, I always will tend to read it within the, within the sermon. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. So, uh, but let's begin with a word of prayer again and trust this time to God. Father... Your word is truth. This is your word. Lord, you wrote it. You gave it to us. You preserved it. Lord, you are the one who empowers these words. Lord, you are the one who gives us the spirit, who teaches us your word, convicts us of your word, and even empowers us to obey your word. We pray now that your spirit would fill us as we look to your word. Help us to grow in an understanding of you, understanding of your power, your sovereignty, your might, your justice, and your wrath, even. Help us to understand that you will punish sin. Help us understand, Lord, that you are faithful. You are loving, you are merciful, that you will deliver your people, that you are caring. Lord, we pray, as we step on your, open your word, cause us to know you more. And as we think of thought, these thoughts after you, that we would worship you, give you praise, because we have Come to hear your voice and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This uh, morning's sermon is entitled, I Will Carry You. And you've been with us. You kind of know that I sort of just always take a phrase out of the text that I think is uh, reflective of the theme of the sermon. But uh, this phrase, I will carry you, reminds me of a poem, maybe a poem that you have all heard at one point or other. Uh, that poem is called Footprints in the Sand. How many of you heard that poem? How many of you actually have a, a copy of it somewhere uh, in your home? 
Yeah, me too, me too, okay. So it's, it's there, it's a real popular uh, poem. What's kind of interesting about this poem, by the way, is that uh, the author is di- disputed. There are like three different people who claim to have written the poem. And so it's like, okay, you're all Christians? Okay. Uh, maybe it was like a simultaneous inspiration, you know, kind of a thing, whereas God moved in all that. But then, uh, anyways, uh, no matter who wrote it, it's a wonderful poem, a very encouraging poem to many believers throughout the ages. And if you, so as you are all familiar with it, it describes basically someone who's basically in a dream, dreams that they're walking along with the Lord on the beach. And as they walk along the beach, they're seeing their life uh, kind of pass by, you know, they're reviewing their whole life. And then along the way, and as they get near the end of the person's life, they look back upon the sand, right? And they've been walking with the Lord the whole time. And, and he sees sometimes there are two footprints and then sometimes there are one. And so the person is curious about this. And so this is how uh, the poem goes. The person asks the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there's only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? The Lord replied, The years when you have seen only one set of footprints, my child, is when I carried you. That's a wonderful thought, right? God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He promised to be with us. He is our shepherd that is with us. Uh, God's, we know that this this poem sort of reflects the scriptural truth of God's faithfulness to his people. And if you are a child of God, he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. That's a wonderful truth. He'll always be with you as your, your shepherd. And when life gets really hard and you feel really weak, that's those times when he will carry you like a shepherd who carries a weak lamb or a weak or injured sheep. And that's the kind of God we follow, one who carries his sheep. In chapter 46, verse 4, God says to his people, I will carry you. And that's, uh, that's a very, just that phrase that stands out in this text. Uh, it is in contrast to the idols uh, that we're going to see. But God is a God who will carry you. And there's some great encouragement to that, even for us today, but it was a great encouragement to the people of Israel in those days. Today's sermon assures God's people that he is mighty enough to deliver them from harm, to deliver them from trouble, in this life, there will be many times when we find ourselves walking in the valleys of the shadow of death even. And when we face those times, we need to hear God's assurance, don't we? A lot of times we, in our weakness, we, we doubt. We, oh, Lord, where are you? Oh, Lord, why? Oh, I'm alone. But God's with us. God's faithful. He's true. Even if we don't see him, God is with us. It's those times when we need to hear God's assurance, God's assurance that I will carry you. And that's what he does for his people. That's what he does in, the, in this text for the nation Israel, for the people of God. Last week in chapter 45, we saw that God promised to use a man named Cyrus, the Persian king, to deliver Israel from their Babylonian captivity, even some 80 years before King Cyrus was even born. And as if anticipating the doubts of those future exiles enslaved by mighty Babylon, God in these two chapters assures them that he is able and will destroy Babylon and deliver Israel, just as he promised in the previous chapter. He will use this man. 
his servant, his anointed that we looked at last week, Cyrus. Both these chapters are about God's judgment of Babylon. This future empire, even as of the writing of Isaiah, it's not the major empire. Assyria is. But Babylon is a small player at that time, and it's a rising. It would rise up to eventually even conquer Assyria and conquer uh, Persia and uh, Media and start the Persian Empire. This future empire that even has yet to be really, really rise up in the scene, God is already telling Israel, this is what I will do for you and do to them when I choose to deliver you through Cyrus. And so these two chapters form for us two points, two assurances, really, that God is mighty, that God is mighty enough to save his people and deliver them exactly as he promised. He will do so. And these, as we study these two points, I pray that they would be an assurance to you, that you would be able to understand how God's faithfulness to Israel is a reflection of his character, his eternal character, that he is faithful to his people today too. And uh, if you may even uh, be encouraged that if you are walking through the valley or walking through those dark times, that God will carry you too. God will carry you. All right, so let's take a look then at these two chapters, and we'll look at them pretty, uh, a little willing, I think pretty straightforwardly, uh, short, briefly. And chapter 46 then is where we'll start. And chapter 46 gives us the first assurance. And this first assurance is that God is mightier than, the Babylon, than Babylon's idols. God is mightier than Babylon's idols. The focus in this chapter is upon the futility of the idols of Babylon. The, the idols of Babylon that are significant to, to the Babylonians and to uh, everyone in that day was representative of their source of power are futile. They're hopeless. They're helpless. As we mentioned on occasion, this latter part of Isaiah is, is almost... As we read it, it's almost written with a view to the Israelites who would be living during the exile. Remember, the exile doesn't take place for, uh, until 586 B.C., but this is written no later than 680 B.C. So it's almost 100 years later when this exile would even begin. But God is writing here to these Israel, to he's writing to Israel during Isaiah's day, but he's also writing to the Israelites who would be in in a, then captive, who would be in captivity in Babylon. And then you can imagine these words as we're going to look at them. They, to Judah, who was not yet in captivity, they would hear these words. They were kind of like, mm, that's nice, you know, because it's like it doesn't quickly apply to them right now. They say, oh, that's nice. But you can imagine to those Israelites who were living in the exile period, under enslaved by Babylon, these words would have been a source of great encouragement to them. In those days, uh, the conquests and victories of a nation were often attributable to the gods of the nations, to their idols. And uh, the exiles would have, been, uh, would have been tempted to compare their god with the gods of their conquering nation, in Babylon in this case. And they would have been tempted to turn away from their god and turn to the gods of the Babylonians. So God here reminds them that he is mightier than Babylon's idols. And he writes in verses 1 through 7, or he reveals in verse 1 to 7, how he is mightier than the Babylon's idols is that those idols, first of all, can't carry you. They can't carry you. In a very practical sense, he says, well, first of all, they can't even carry you. We read verse 1 and 2. 
Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Bel and Nebo here are Babylonian gods. Uh, Bel is uh, another name for the god Marduk. You probably, that's probably the more common if you are familiar with your Babylonian gods. Marduk is the one. He's like the, he's like the Zeus, you know, the Jupiter. He's the, the chief god of the pantheon of gods that they have. Marduk is that guy. And his name, sometimes they would not, Marduk, they treat his name so holy that they didn't want to pronounce his name. So they would just call him Bel, which is another, basically the word for Lord. So Bel, or son as Bel Marduk, was one of the head of the chief god. He was the, known as the god of the sun. Now, Nebo is another god. He's the son of Marduk. He's the son of Marduk, but he had a special place among the, other, among the gods because he was the god of writing and wisdom, of knowledge, essentially. And Bel and Nebo, as gods, were, uh, this is according to archaeologists and you know, biblical archaeologists, they, write, they record that each year during the New Year festival, so whenever they have their New Year's, Bel and Nebo, their, their statues, would be basically carried out throughout the streets in Babylon, a procession of, of sorts. They would walk about, actually, uh, Nebo would be taken from his city and brought to Babylon, where they, and then where uh, Bel's statue would be brought out, and they would kind of march around the city, and then they would arrive back at the temple that's in Isagila, and that's kind of a, a, just, uh, this major temple dedicated to, to Bel Marduk. And what is supposedly would happen each annual year is that they would attribute, they, why this is so significant is because Nebo, who was the god of knowledge, who, of wisdom, would then write down on the supposedly these uh, 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 legendary tablets of destiny uh, all the fates that were decreed by the gods for the coming year. So you can imagine this uh, being a very part, big part of the Babylonian culture. These two gods every year were carried about, standing tall throughout the city. And everyone would have rejoiced because it's the new year. Every year they would have worshipped those gods because those gods were writing down the destiny for their, for them, for their lives and for their country, for their nation, uh, for every single life uh, that coming year. It was a highlight, uh, needless to say. But you notice here in this prophetic vision... Isaiah's prophetic vision from God shows these gods not as standing tall, but as what? But as bowed down, stooped over. They're basically toppled over is the picture. Instead of standing tall, being carried about, uh, they, uh, they are toppled over. And it's, the picture is almost that they're basically on a cart. And they're on some cart and they're being pulled by beasts of burden. Uh, very, uh, you know... If, it's, it's not generally, if you think about uh, uh, idols, it's not good when your idol falls down, you know, on its on the side. It, you know, you, you want to keep it up, you know. You want to make it stand tall. It's like, oh, our idol fell down quickly. Pull it up. And so this picture then, uh, that God says a prophecy that these idols, Bel and Nebo, are both falling over. In fact, these idols, and he just emphasizes just almost, there's a... There's a, a holy sarcasm, if you will, from God here as he goes, gives these, these words. He says, oh, they, they can't even be carried by them. They can't even carry themselves. They need animals to carry them because they're so heavy. These idols can't carry anyone. They themselves need to be carried. But God tells the Israelites, these idols, they can't carry you. But he tells them, I tell you who, uh, who can. Verse 3, 
Listen to me. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. You see, uh, there's a wonderful picture here, a lot of parallel nature, uh, structure here. But from their birth, that is from their deliverance as a nation from Egypt, God has carried them. And much so it's more, God will continue to carry them to their graying hair years, to their old age years. God will still be the same. He will be faithful. He, he, who, uh, he who has carried them in the past will carry them in the future. The emphatic parallel statements stand out. He says, I will bear you. And it says, I have done it. Or, or really possibly, I, I think the translation is probably, I have made you. I will carry you. I will bear you. I will deliver you. And in each of those cases, there's this emph- the, uh, the personal pronoun I is added for emphasis. I, that is God, the Lord God, your creator, your maker, is the one who will carry you. Idols can't carry you, but God can, he says, and God will. It would be a mistake for the Israelites to compare him with, with Bel and Nebo, with other idols of the, of the Babylonian pantheon. Verse 5 uh, and following, he writes, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. The one may cry to it. It cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. These words remind us a lot of Isaiah chapter 44, where that, there's a whole long section about God's re- re- revealing the realities of those who worship idols. God reveals here the foolishness, reminds again the foolishness of worshiping idols. Because an idol needs, needs to be made by man. An idol needs man. God does not need man. Idol needs man to be made, and idol needs man to be carried. What's more, an idol cannot even answer nor deliver the one who cries to it. But not so with God. God does not need man. He does not need man to produce him. He's, he needs no man to make him. He is the eternal I am. He makes man. He produced man. He does not need to be carried. He's the one who carries. He carries his people. And he delivers the people of God as his promise in contrast to the idols. So don't even compare. It says, you don't even compare him with other gods. <laughs> he elaborates on this in verse 8 to 13. In the sense of where he's showed us that he's might in the idols and that the idols can't carry them. He says, but in verse 8 to 13, idols can't deliver you either. And they can't carry you. They can't deliver you. Remember, verse, we'll read 8 to 11. Remember this and be assured. So God wants them to remember these words, remember this truth, find assurance in these truths. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, 
Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Um, There is some uh, question uh, among the commentators as to whom God is addressing here in verse 8. These transgressors. Is he addressing the Babylonians or is he addressing the Israelites? Uh, I believe the answer is the latter. I think the context, especially if you go back to verse 3, God began to address the, the house of Jacob. And the, the people of Israel. And so and he, that continued throughout that section. He implying the, the second pronoun to them. So he even here that continues into this, this section. Israel is called to find assurance by remembering what God has done throughout the history of Israel. He calls them transgressors because they're not. They've forgotten him. That's why they're in captivity. They had forgotten God's faithfulness. That's why they had abandoned him and worshipped the, the idols of their surrounding nations. And so God cast them out of the land. But God calls these transgressors to repentance. He calls them to remember. Remember this in your captivity. Remember this and be assured. Find comfort in this. Find assurance in this. That's, that's the challenge, isn't it? It's oftentimes when we're in trials and we're, when we are distressed that we are only we're focused on our distresses. But the challenge is to remember what God has said. When we're not in trials, we all remember them. Right now, if you're not in a trial, you're hearing this, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, God's going to deliver me. But when you're in the midst of trials, right, we forget that God's going to deliver us. We forget that God's going to be with us. We forget that God says, I'm going to give you my grace is sufficient for you. God, we forget that God's going to work together the, all these things for our good. When God says, Recall it to mind. And that's what he challenges Israel to do. That's what we need to do in the midst of trials. Remember, for Israel, they had to remember all the ways that God had been faithful to them. All the ways that he had accomplished in the former, in the former things that were long past. Such as they were to remember how God called Abram and brought him into the promised land. And made him into a mighty nation just as he promised. They would remember how God sent them to Egypt and delivered them from slavery there. They would remember how the Lord provided food and water through the years of wandering in the wilderness. They would remember how God defeated their enemies in the promised land. Whatever God had declared to them, whatever he purposed to do for them, whatever he willed, God accomplished it. There's not a single thing that he promised to them and he failed to do. And now he is declaring to them that he will bring Cyrus, this, the bird of prey from the east. He's going to bring this bird of prey that's from a faraway nation to release Israel from captivity. And the people of God can be assured that he will do it. God's deliverance goes, of course, beyond just deliverance from captivity. God's ultimate deliverance for his people is from their sin, the captivity of sin. Look at verse 12 to 13. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded. He's still speaking to Israel here. Who are far from righteousness. Their lives are not marked by righteousness. Even though they are the people of God. God does not, uh, you know, (laughs) look for great good people to save. God recognizes. God saves sinners. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion. And my glory for Israel. See, this, this salvation is still awaits the future time. This salvation of Israel still awaits when the return of Christ at the millennial kingdom. But this salvation that is still awaiting its fulfillment has already been accomplished when Christ came that first time and died on the cross. 
and he paid for the sins of his people. Again, what God has declared, he will accomplish. He will do it. God will deliver Israel, not idols, not anyone, only God. And this encouragement for us, I I trust, as we just reflect upon this, just devotionally even, that God here promises to his people that he will carry them, he will deliver them, he is able to do so, and he is able to do so for you and me, and he's willing to do so. He will carry you, he will deliver you. Sometimes our salvation that we received by faith when we believed in Jesus is ours, but sometimes in our lives we wonder, is is this going to happen? Is it true? There are times, when, especially when we're young, in our faith, we, we doubt. You can trust God in the many ways that he has, as, as, as much as he has promised it, he will accomplish it. Because this is what he did. For Israel, this is what he will do for the people of God today. God gives a second assurance here in chapter 47. He's not only mightier than the Babylonian idols, He's also mightier than the Babylonian empire itself. And that's point number two, or assurance number two, is that God is mightier than Babylon. Okay, maybe he's mightier than the idols, but he's also mightier than the nation itself, the empire itself. In this chapter, God addresses Babylon directly. Chapter 46, he addressed the people of God. Now he's addressing Babylon. Though, even as he's addressing Babylon, it's really for the people of God to hear. And he prophesies of her impending humiliation and hopelessness at his hands. We see Babylon's humiliation in verse 1 to 5. Look at verse 1 to 5 with me. Here he's speaking to Babylon. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another term for Babylonians. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the Queen of Kingdoms. Babylon uh, as, as a city and as representative of this empire, is pictured here as a virgin daughter. A virgin daughter would be this, a, 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 a picture of, of innocence, of purity. But now this virgin daughter would be put to shame in various ways, that she would be violated. She, would, she, was, she who was once basically untouched by attacks. And, and this, is a, this is a reference to the Babylonian empire, Babylon as a city, this, this queen of the kingdoms this, uh, would w- soon be assaulted, would be conquered, so that figuratively she would be left naked and exposed. And this is basically God's way of describing what would happen to the Babylonians. God says that it is because of him, himself, that w- this will take place. God, verse 3, I will take vengeance, and I will not spare a man. This is what God's going to do to Babylon. While humanly speaking, Cyrus, King Cyrus would be the one who would defeat Babylon. Verse 4 indicates that the one behind it all, the one who says, I will take vengeance for his people, is our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. This is God himself. These are, this is who will take vengeance. This is the one who will deliver 
Israel. This is the one who will, uh, and to do so, he will be the one who humbles Babylon, brings them to shame, this mighty, powerful empire. Babylon's humiliation would mean Israel's redemption. Why is this happening to Babylon? God explains. He explains in verse 6 through 11. And we see in verse 6 through 11, Babylon's sins. This is why God would judge Babylon. You know, one might say, well, didn't God use Babylon? You know, that's why he sent, you know. Yeah. So why is he holding it against Babylon? Well, because Babylon has sinned. Verse 6 11. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you, you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider nor remember the outcome of them. Now then hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow nor no loss of children. But these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. We see several sins, three in fact, uh, of Babylon are mentioned in these verses. These are why God judges Babylon. First of all, Babylon is guilty of not showing mercy to Israel in verse 6. Verse 6 there. God is the one. He is very clear that, yes, he was the one who is the sovereign providential God. And so he is the one who orchestrated that, that Israel would be taken into captivity by Babylon. But nevertheless, even though God is the one who is sovereign, Babylon is accountable for their actions. And though Israel was given into their hands, Babylon, who should have been merciful to Israel, should have shown compassion to them, would, did not. They did not show mercy. And then they, they treated the people harshly, especially the elderly. Even today, we talk about elder abuse. You know, you think about, you know, that's, it's, it's a cruelty, especially as we get older. And so many elders, they have, uh, uh, their, their mind is not as sharp. They, they get a little fuzzy in their thinking. And those who abuse those elders, who take advantage of those elders, there's a, there's a special, there's a, a, there's a, a heinousness to that, that, those kind of actions. And that's what kind of, when you think about us, we get angry by elder abuse. So hopefully you should get angry at it. Uh, how much more than when God uh, condemn when God sees this nation treating the, the multitude of elders in Israel uh, in a harsh way? They showed no mercy, basically, in the treatment of Israel. So God says He's going to. That's why God is going to judge them. So not only is that sin we see, but secondly, Babylon is guilty of arrogance and pride. Uh, it's a sin that we're all familiar with, I believe. Arrogance and pride. We all have it in some way or other. And Israel's, uh, pardon me, Babylon's pride is seen by her thought that her kingdom would last forever. She thought that she would be mighty forever. She thought that her power was the result of her own efforts, in fact. She did not know that her reign was because of the sovereign Lord. In fact, 
is a scene particularly because she thinks that she is God. She thinks that she is eternally existing. Back in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, and even throughout in 46, we saw it, where God would say, I am the Lord as there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That's what God says. But what does Babylon say here? In verse 8, verse 10, what does she say? She says, I am, and there is no one besides me. She is basically taking the place of God. She's taking God's words and attributing it to herself as an empire, as a nation. She thought she was unique. She thought she was almighty. But only God is. And God would judge her for her pride and arrogance. Thirdly, Babylon is guilty of sorcery. She's known for her sorcery. In verses 9 to 11, there we see terms of sorcery and spells that she is guilty of. The term uh, uh, of sorcery is basically the practice of where they would seek information about the future, usually by means of demonic forces or, and, uh, or looking into the stars. It is an attaining of wisdom and knowledge through spells and incantations, other supernatural means. And so for these sins of Babylon, God will bring disaster and destruction. That their sorceries would fail to reveal. That they, they would, none of their sorceries revealed to them that Cyrus was coming. In fact, when you go to Daniel chapter 5, <laughs> Belshazzar, who was the son of uh, the, Pers- the Babylonian king at that time, who was ruling in Babylon, basically is, is defeated without lifting a sword because they're just taken unaware. The, so- the enemy soldiers uh, just come in because uh, historically they, they, they diverted some water in uh, one of the uh, kind of rivers coming to Jerusalem, and then they came in under the, the, uh, where the water came in and took over the city. Babylon's sins. And then lastly, in verse 12 to 15, we see how God is mightier than Babylon, and that we see that Babylon's hopelessness, that she's hopeless to even resist this. Verse 12 to 15, we'll read all of the remaining verses. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. And uh, if we were wondering before whether God was mocking the Babylonians, uh, it's very clear here that he is. He's mocking them. He's actually telling them to, oh, go ahead and continue in your sorceries. Continue in spells. Maybe they'll help. Maybe they're going to do something. Maybe they'll be effective. Oh, no, you've been, so t- you've been very tired. And you think, oh, why don't you go look to your astrologers now. Go, go ask them. Maybe they'll, they, they'll help you. Maybe they'll be able to save you from what will come. And then... God says, no, they're not. Verse 13, behold, they're like stubble. They're going to be burned up in the fire too. They cannot deliver themselves even, much less you. This is what will happen to those whom the Babylonians look to, the sorcerers, their astrologers, those who they tracked with. They basically, they've practiced, they've, they've walked along with 
these astrology. They've lived with astrology all their lives. And if you, you know, even today, we still have astrology in a very pop astrology through our horoscope, daily horoscopes and things like that. I know in uh, Chinese culture, there's this, this big red astro- book that uh, a lot of, I see, sometimes would see my relatives flipping through, say, oh, when's the good season? When's the, the good month? When's the good time to, to do this or do that, to get married? It's all the uh, continuation of the practice of astrology, the timing of the seasons and the stars. They are hopeless, God says, of those things. When people look to those things, they wandered in their own way. They're, they're, like, they've also, they're also just as lost. There is none to save the Babylonians from their, because of their practice of sorcery and, and astrology and looking to everything else but God to deliver you, to deliver them. There's no way out. They're hopeless. And their certain doom here would be an assurance to the people of God that they would be saved from the power of Babylon because of their God who delivers them. But it would have also just been a warning to the Israelites too, a warning to them to, to not fear nor to put their trust in Babylon. You can imagine after 70 years in, in Babylon as captives that a good number of the Israelites would have probably just followed after uh, the Babylonian gods. They would have just acclimated, just like you. If you lived 70 years in any place, you would have probably taken on the culture, the thoughts of that region as well. And it's evidence because when you think about the return from captivity, really only a small percentile of the Israelites who were thought to be in captivity actually bothered to return to the promised land. Most of them continued to stay in Babylon and did not obey the Lord. Today, the Babylonian Empire is long gone. The worship of Baal and Nebel have also long disappeared. Yet the spirit of Babylon continues. In the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of man's rebellion against God. From the very first story of Babylon, a.k.a. Babel, in Genesis 11, Babel, Babylon, has been a symbol of man's rebellion against God. Everywhere where man basically replaces God with their own religion, whether it be a religion of self or religion of other gods, that is the spirit of Babylon. In fact, we get to Revelation 17, 18. You guys are studying Revelation, I believe, in some of your Sunday school classes. You will see that Babylon will one day be judged. This spirit of Babylon that is, still exists in our world today Uh, One commentator, H.A. Ironside, writes, Whenever people turn away from the one true and living God and refuse the word of God, they are always ready to turn to other things. It's a very true statement. Whenever man turns away from God and his word, they will come up with something else to turn to. It may not today be sorceries and astrology, but it will be something else. And whatever that something else It is an idol. And whatever that idol is, it will not save. Whether it's man's power, man's wisdom, man's strength, whether it's some other religion, some other philosophy, God's words would apply to them that they will not save. Only God saves. Well, Simply as we conclude, God's people can be assured 
of God's promise to deliver them because he is mightier than Babylon. But their idols and their power, their empire. And I think for us, as we draw that to ourselves today, we see these words today. We're not in a captivity and enslaved in Babylon. But we all understand that we have been, we had been enslaved to sin. And God is the one who has been the one who's mighty to save us, to deliver us. And even as we continue in our fight against sin, even as we walk in this world that's under the curse of sin, we can be assured that God will be with us, that God will bear us, God will carry us, that God will deliver us. He will bring us to the completion of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, if you're here and you, you don't know Jesus, you're, you're still not sure whether you're, you're thinking about it, you're, you're pondering it, you're considering it, then know this first and foremost, that God is mightier than all your sin. That God can deliver you. There is no sin that you have committed. There's no sin that you have done that is too terrible, too horrible, that God will not forgive. For he is mightier than your sin. The death of Christ on the cross, the death of his son on the cross is evidence of that. He did not withhold his very own son for us. And that you would understand, if you understand that, you understand the depths of your sin, and you understand that he is mightier than your sin, and that and he has made provision for your sin, that you would turn to him so that he might carry you and deliver you and bear you. For there's nothing else that can save in this world, only Jesus. For he is mightier. Our God's mighty. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God who is mighty to save. You are God who is mightier, as we've seen, than Babylon's idols, than the Babylonian empire itself. We see, Lord, that your, your judgment of Babylon, even on this other side of history, we see, Lord, you, what you said you would do, you did. Lord, we, we are encouraged. We thank you for your word, and I pray, Father, for our saints here, that each and every one we would continue to trust in you, that we would know that you are faithful to accomplish your word. That no matter what we may be going through in this life, that we know you'll always carry us. You'll always deliver us. You'll always bear with us. Just as you you have done for Israel, so you continue to do for us today. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We know that in him is the accomplishment of this salvation that you had promised to Israel. That one day you will fulfill because you're faithful but that you're already fulfilling in us, your church today. Thank you, Lord, for this revelation of your faithfulness and your power. Help us to grow in our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.